Good evening, everyone. Uh, it is a real pleasure to be with you tonight. It was a real pleasure to be with you yesterday as well. Uh, I didn't really take the opportunity yesterday to introduce myself at all. I felt like to do justice to Psalm 22, uh, what I felt like the text was leading was for us to be in that moment of lament, and I didn't want to distract from it at all. Uh, but tonight I just wanted to take a moment uh, to thank you all for having me, um, to also thank Jason for inviting me. Jason and I go back a ways. Uh, we met when we were both at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. There's another important person that I met while I was at seminary, uh, perhaps even more important than Jason, which is my wife, Vanessa. She's not able to be here tonight because she's home with our kids. Um, Vanessa and I uh, got engaged while we were at seminary and, and got married right at the end of our time at seminary. And when we were thinking about who we wanted to be at part of the wedding, we thought we really need to get Jason D's involved um, because we knew that Jason just kind of exudes joy and that if he was part of the wedding, the wedding would be a joyful event. And uh, so we had Jason be an usher so that everyone who comes got to get a little bit of Jason D's on their way into the wedding. And he did not disappoint. He showed up in his seersucker and everything. Uh, so, um, and, I've, and one of the things that I've enjoyed about being here with y'all is seeing Jason in, in this element and seeing this church that has been raised up here. And I'm just so excited about what the Lord has in store for you all in the future. Um, but what we're talking about tonight is unfortunately not joy. Uh, it is suffering uh, even more. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about the book of Job. And the book of Job is a personal passion of mine. And I want to tell you about how I got into that and then think through with you a bit about what the book of Job can say to us uh, about responding to suffering. And so I think Job has a lot to say to us right now, but what we're going to be talking about tonight is not just true for right now, because unfortunately, the suffering that we are going through as a nation right now, and it's affecting us all personally to different degrees, uh, that is going to end, but other suffering will come. The end of this suffering will not be the end of all suffering unless Christ returns, and maybe we can pray for that as well. Uh, so Job is such an important resource for us as we think about suffering. And for me, the obsession with the book of Job that I've had began when I was as sick as I have ever been. The sore throat that I had made it hard to breathe. The stomach pain that I had made it hard to eat, and the combination of those two things made it hard for me to believe. I had moved to Nairobi, Kenya after graduating from college to serve in a Kenyan church, but I was too sick to even leave the house. So I languished in illness and loneliness, and I wondered, why God? And feeling an affinity for its titled character, I decided to read through the book of Job. Now, what I encountered there completely shocked me. I know I had read the book before, but I had lacked the life experience to really resonate with what it said. But now, in the midst of this suffering, the book of Job bowled me over because it asked precisely the theological questions that I was struggling with at that time, but it didn't answer them the way that I expected. 
And now, as the church, as our nation, and as humanity as a whole, really, faces these overlapping and compounding existential challenges that we've faced in these recent months, the questions that the book of Job wrestles with have a new relevance. Those same unexpected answers that I encountered back when I was in Kenya can help us today respond to this challenge with faith. So tonight we're going to think of seven questions that the book of Job addresses with us and how it answers them. And the first of those questions is, will I be protected from suffering? A dark fog of anxiety now envelops our nation. The uncertainty of our individual and collective futures overwhelms us. But in fact, the combination of a global pandemic and economic recession and national unrest have simply stripped away the false security that we find in our health, our finances, and the social fabric of our country. Like Wiley Coyote, we ran off the cliff a while ago, but it's only in the last few months that we finally looked down and realized that we're standing on air. The narrative opening of Job acknowledges our basic yearning to find protection from suffering. Job is introduced to us as blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And this high praise of Job's piety is reaffirmed twice by God himself. And yet, Job's strength may also be his weakness. After describing Job's unmatched wealth in sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys, the narrator recounts for us how Job would continually rise early in the morning to to offer sacrifices on behalf of each of his ten children just in case any of them may have sinned in their hearts. And maybe the narrator is just trying to convey just how pious Job is. He even offers sacrifices for the possible sins of others. But it certainly seems like something isn't quite right in the way that Job approaches his relationship with God. Anxiety outweighs faith, and fear is divorced from trust. Job seems to think that by offering sufficient sacrifices— He can protect himself and those he loves from suffering. Now, Satan, true to his role as the accuser, points out this apparent chink in Job's armor to God. He questions whether Job's faith will survive the suffering he has been so determined to avoid through his sacrifices and his substantial livestock nest egg. Does Job fear God for no reason, he asks? If God removes the protective hedge of blessing in which he has ensconced Job's life, Satan predicts that Job will curse God to his face. I was once shattered by a similar question. I had been suffering from chronic and at times crippling back pain and sciatica for two years. The pain was so bad that I would often fantasize about being in heaven and finally free from its clutches on my psyche. But one day, a question intruded 
on those dreams. What if when you get to heaven, the pain is still there? Will you still want to be there? Will the presence of God be enough to satisfy you? Or is your actual desire just freedom from pain? Now, I know how I want to answer that question theoretically, but I hope that I don't ever have to answer it in reality. However, God, with absolute confidence in his servant, gives Job an opportunity to answer Satan's question. He allows Satan to carry out his test, to rip Job's wealth and health from him, just like COVID-19 has done for so many. Ironically, then, Job suffers not for unrighteousness or even in spite of his righteousness, but precisely for his righteousness. It's because he is so righteous that God allows him to suffer. And this is horrifying. The narrative opening of Job in chapters 1 to 2 acknowledges our basic yearning to find protection from suffering because even righteous and wealthy Job feels it. But then the book undercuts our hope of avoiding suffering. Even righteous and wealthy Job experiences it and God allows it to happen. So, the book's answer to the question on all of our minds right now, will I be protected from suffering, is a resounding, I wouldn't count on it. As Jesus declares in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. So that leads us into our second question. How should I respond to God in the midst of suffering? If I know that it is likely coming. I need to be prepared to respond to God in the midst of it. And the book of Job forces us, like Job himself, to move from the anxiety-ridden question, will I be protected from suffering, to this faith-building question, how should I respond to God in the midst of suffering? Though we can hope that we will be spared the extremity of suffering that Job faces, every day, And all the more now, we have opportunities to choose commitment over comfort and faith over fear. Once again, though, the book refuses to offer the expected feel-good answer to the question that it poses. Sure, Job initially responds to God with admirable piety. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You may have sung a worship chorus kind of along the lines of those words. And he says later, and shall we accept good from God and not trouble? This is the most that we often hear from Job in the church, if we hear from Job at all. But he has more to say, a lot more, and it's not pleasant. First, in chapter 3, Job curses the day of his birth. Then he lashes out at the friends who have come to console him, calling them worthless physicians and miserable comforters. He complains about his isolation from friends and family. He even appears to accuse God of injustice and vicious attacks. Taking aim at God, for example, he asks, Does it seem good to you to oppress? 
to despise the work of your hands and favor the schemes of the wicked? We like the stoic martyr of faith that we encounter in those first couple chapters where Job gives those famous responses to suffering. But this Job, who rails on chapter after chapter, he makes us uncomfortable. His friends feel the same way. They do all they can to encourage him to calm down, to speak to God more respectfully, and to repent of his sin. But Job refuses. Something is not right in the world, he insists, and God better do something about it. Shockingly, at the end of the book, God declares that it is Job and not the friends who has spoken what is right about God. God doesn't justify this verdict, but the rest of the Old Testament does. The heroes of Israelite faith frequently question God's justice in their current experience, not from a lack of trust in God, but precisely because they believe that God is good, powerful, and loving enough to do what is just and right. When God contemplates destroying Sodom, Abraham advocates for the deliverance of any righteous people in the city, asking, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Moses, similarly, dissuades God from wiping out Israel altogether after the sin of the golden calf by reminding God of his promises to their forefathers, his mighty acts on the people's behalf, and how the Egyptians would respond if he did wipe the Israelites out. Jacob physically wrestles with God, refusing to let go until God blesses him, thereby earning the name Israel, which the text defines for us as he who struggles with God. And living up to this name, the Israelite psalmists dare to cry, why and how long? And as we saw yesterday, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Israelite prophets intercede on behalf of the people. They struggle with God, but they never let him go because of their faith in his justice, goodness, and power. And God remarkably, repeatedly responds favorably to these requests. Reflecting this biblical tradition, Jesus tells a parable of a widow whose persistent pleading convinces an unjust judge to intervene on her behalf. And Jesus concludes, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to him day and night. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This parable indicates that God's chosen ones may encounter injustice and that they may express their faith through pleading with God to rectify that injustice rather than submissively accepting it. And not only that, but this could be seen as an expression of their faith. Job's complaints should be understood in this same tradition of what I call defiant faith. When Job asks God whether oppressing his creation and bestowing favor on the wicked seems good to God, Job fully believes he knows 
that God does not approve of such injustice. His argument with God depends on God agreeing with him on this point. So like the arguments of those other heroes of Israelite faith, Job's accusatory question, like Abraham's, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, is an expression of Job's faith, which is intended to remind God of who he has revealed himself to be, just, good, powerful, and committed to his people. Job expresses the depth of his faith by clinging to God's goodness, even when his experience of God would suggest exactly the opposite. As Goethe writes in Tasso, at last the sailor lays firm hold upon the rock upon which he has been dashed. All that's happened to us in the last few months is I think I can confidently say like nothing any of us have ever experienced before. It has the potential to transform our understanding of how we relate to God in the midst of suffering. Job's pious submission in the first few chapters is easy to endorse when we consider suffering from the outside. However, the spread of this virus, which has left illness, death, and financial devastation, not to mention social unrest in its wake, has drawn many into suffering, and it looks to continue to do so for some time. This type of intense and sustained affliction can actually forge together faith and protest into a stronger theological alloy. And Job, these other Old Testament exemplars of faith and Jesus' persistent widow all encourage us to express our faith in God by crying out to him to demonstrate his revealed character by ending the ravages that we are now enduring and to be faithful and mindful to mankind and care for human beings once again. But I'll warn you, as you may have experienced yesterday in the service, relating to God this way will likely feel, well, weird. I remember when I first experienced it. I, would, I once preached a message emphasizing this aspect of Job in a church in Mozambique, which is a war-torn African country that continues to struggle with poverty. And light shone onto this small congregation who were sitting on wooden benches strewn across a, uh, a mud floor through this gaping hole in the roof. And I told the small congregation there that the book of Job and the laments in the Psalms teach us that we can follow Soren Kierkegaard's advice. Complain, the Lord is not afraid. He can certainly defend himself. And as they heard this, women in tattered dresses with babies slung across their backs stood. They held their hands up to that hole in the roof and they wept. They wailed in a way that honestly made me as a buttoned-up Westerner feel uncomfortable. But it was one of the most powerful worship experiences that I have ever had. And afterwards, the weeping turned into laughter and hugs all around. As Psalm 30 says, the Lord turned our mourning into dancing. And addressing God this way has the power to do that again even now. 
And that leads us to our third question, which is, how should we respond to others in the midst of suffering? particularly if they're responding to suffering in the way that we have just discussed. And if we would raise theological objections against Job's bold protests, the book's presentation of Job's friends should caution us. Attempting to console Job, they preach profound theological truths about God's just punishment of the wicked and sovereign deliverance of the righteous to a man whom we know God has allowed to suffer because of his righteousness. As Job doggedly declares the injustice of his situation, the friends end up turning on him, accusing him of great wickedness. Now, why this change of heart? The friends become enemies because they are just as terrified of suffering as Job was at the beginning of the book. As Job says in 621, Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. They simply can't believe that Job is genuinely righteous. Because if that is true, then they could share his fate. They want to find some distinction between themselves and Job that can protect them from Job's suffering. If he's suffering because he's wicked, then their righteousness can keep them safe. But if he is just as righteous as they are, then what assurance do they have? And this is why both legalism and blaming the victim are so disturbingly instinctive. And I remember when this first hit me, I was teaching some students uh, about the book of Job, and I was uh, walking to work listening to a podcast, as I like to do. And in this podcast, it told the story of a young man who was murdered. And I remember hearing that story and thinking, oh, that's awful. I could get murdered. That's terrifying. But then later in the podcast, it came out that actually this young guy was involved in dealing drugs. And I breathed a sigh of relief. Right? Because I don't deal drugs. No longer do I have to worry about being murdered like that young guy. And then it was a couple weeks later, that, was kind of, that insight was kind of in the back of my mind, and I was listening to another podcast, and it told a story about a young man who died of lung cancer. And once again, I had that same response. Oh, no, I could get cancer. I could die. That would be terrible. But then later on, it came out that this young man smoked a pack a day, right? And I thought, well, I don't smoke a pack a day. I don't need to worry anymore. You see what's happening there? I distance myself from that suffering because I find something that that person does that I don't do, and now I feel safe. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we all can do that at times in our life. And I've seen this effect recently, Because when I hear about that young deceased victim of COVID-19, I listen closely to see if that person has some kind of underlying condition that I don't have. Because if they're just like me and they can die, then I could die too, right? And that's what's so frightening about the time that we're currently in. We may mourn that loss, but if I'm honest, I also want to keep it at a distance, I want to put these people who suffer in a different category than myself. 
But the book of Job takes this idea head on by the way it presents Job's friends to us, by encouraging us to enter into Job's suffering, by making clear to us that we are not better than him, by judging the friends' efforts to distance themselves from him and his suffering, the book of Job breaks down these imaginary walls separating us from the suffering of others. Now, recognizing this temptation back when the coronavirus um, fears were really starting to get stoked, Jennifer Lyle wrote on Twitter, imagine that all the effects of COVID were only happening to you. Physical deterioration, uncertainty as to if you'll live, finances devastated, you lose your job and nearly all relationships. She's trying to encourage people to enter into the suffering of others. And doing what Lyle suggests will be frightening, as it, as it was for Job's friends. But it is the first step in transforming the apathy or even antipathy we are tempted to feel towards those who suffer in order to protect ourselves into love instead. And in light of events in the last three weeks, and given the demographics in this room, it would be helpful to try Lyle's exercise in regards to the effects of racism. Much of the debate swirling around the protests relates to the difficulty that white people have imagining the effects of racism on the daily lives of people of color. It's too easy for those, who are, uh, those of us who have been spared the effects of racism to blame others, to preach individual responsibility, rather than to empathize with the devastating challenges bequeathed by slavery, lynching, and segregation. What Job's friends should have done, and what we need to do, is listen first, so that we can enter into the suffering of our neighbors. So before you speak, in this or in your response to anyone who suffers, ask yourself, am I being one of Job's friends right now? Am I turning on the sufferer in order to defend myself from my fear of suffering? Fourth, how can I resist the isolation that suffering causes? Though Job has lost his vast wealth and his health, his complaints are primarily focused on his loss of relationships. We might even say that what he struggles with primarily is social distancing. Now, most poignantly, he complains in chapter 19, 13 to 19. He says, God has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me as a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. Now, COVID-19 has made this explicit, but all suffering tends to create isolation, as sufferers are tempted to withdraw from community, while communities, inspired by the fear that drove Job's friends, frequently exclude sufferers. 
There's also the separation caused by those who are unable to relate to the suffering that they have never experienced themselves. Some of the most heartwarming stories of the worst days of the coronavirus pandemic involved efforts to overcome the isolation of suffering. Right? We had the man who sang at his wife's nursing home window, uh, the young cancer survivor who was greeted by a street lined with cars full of cheering friends and neighbors, and those Italians who sang from their balconies. And if you've watched John Krasinski's Some Good News on YouTube, it's full of these kinds of stories. And this global challenge has reminded us, us all of something that the church has always known. There is something irreplaceably important about being together. And this is why churches have struggled to obey stay-at-home orders. It's also why so many stream their own services online, even if there are more sickly, it's not sickly, slickly produced ones available online already. Uh, the live stream, you see, provides some approximation, however small, of community, of being together all at the same time. I was talking to Ed Butler, uh, one of your elders, last night after the service, and, and he observed how that now that churches can finally get back together again, the fellowship that we can now have, like you had last night that I really enjoyed being a part of, it's so much sweeter. Right? We've learned to appreciate it in a new way. So fellowship, we know, and we must not forget it's not just a time to catch up and drink coffee. It is a means of grace. Fifth, is this divine punishment? For Job, however, this social distance is not as difficult as the distance that he feels from God. It's not that he doesn't sense God's presence, but his only experience of God is judgment and wrath. He lacks intimacy with the Almighty. As he says in 1324, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? He dreams of a time of renewal in which he says to God in 1415, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Job reminds us that as important as our relationship with our neighbors truly are. Distance from God is even more painful. Indeed, the biblical testimony is that this distance is the ultimate source of all of our suffering. From the garden to the grave, disobedience has created this separation between us and a holy God. And if it affects righteous Job, none of us can hope to escape it. In times of suffering, we can feel, as Job did, that God has turned against us, has become our enemy. But righteous Job's affliction reminds us to be wary about attributing individual suffering to divine wrath. The easy way to solve the theological, the theological conundrums raised by this book is to collapse, on one hand, the sin which has left the world broken, and on the other hand, Job's experience of that brokenness into one another, to argue that Job's experience of God-forsakenness is the result of his sin. Now, certainly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but... 
The book of Job explicitly forestalls this explanation of Job's suffering by establishing from God's own mouth the reality of Job's righteousness at both the beginning and the end of the book. If we want to interpret the book the way that it presents Job's experience to us, we can't simply conclude that as a sinner, Job is actually receiving less than he deserves, which is actually one of the arguments that the friends make against Job. We can't always draw a straight line from suffering back to sin. Jesus makes this clear. When his disciples ask if a man's blindness was caused by his sin or that of his parents, Jesus responds, this is in John 9, 2 to 3, neither, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus suggests we can draw a line forward from suffering to God's glory. It may be a long line, as Job's is, and it is rarely straight. It's more likely to go through suffering than around it. None of us is as righteous as Job is declared to be. So there are surely sins of which we should repent. Our recent struggles, like every experience of suffering in this sin-soaked world, may encourage us to do just that. But the book of Job reminds us that when God feels distant, our sin may not be the cause. Even the righteous, like Job, suffer. Some have even attributed this pandemic to divine punishment. Job's story encourages us to ask not what sin is this suffering punishing, but how might we display God's glory through our response to it? Sixth, what does suffering tell us about God? In addition to the positive divine verdict on Job's speech at the end of the book, the other endorsement of Job's combative response to God's distance is its effectiveness. It works. The distant God finally appears. And yet, what this God says is once again hardly what we would expect, or likely what Job anticipated. He doesn't explain the reasons behind Job's suffering. The wager with Satan is never mentioned. God doesn't address Job's afflictions at all, at least not directly. Instead, God first establishes himself in chapter 38 as the creator of the cosmos, as his first question to Job indicates. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? God then describes at the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 39, his meticulous care for his creatures, dangerous, unclean, and uncontrollable animals below and beyond Job's own concern. If God is good enough to hunt prey for the lioness, to feed young ravens, to midwife mountain goats, even to brood over the ostrich egg when its mother forsakes it, surely God cares for Job. Jesus makes a similar argument in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
God in his speeches to Job then concludes by asserting his sovereign control over creation in chapters 40 and 41. He turns from arguing from the lesser to the greater to arguing from the greater to the lesser. He introduces Job to the behemoth and the Leviathan in all their terrifying grandeur. No human can hope to tame or even survive an encounter with these creatures. They are embodiments of the human fear of chaos, of the unknown, which cannot be slain with sword or spear or restrained with rope or chain. And by describing them to Job, God acknowledges the very real threat of fear. But God is not intimidated by these terrors. He created them. He says if he wants to, he can put Leviathan, which is sort of a souped-up crocodile, on a leash. If God is powerful enough to control behemoth and Leviathan, then surely Job's situation is not beyond God's sovereign control. As Paul writes in Romans 8, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Some understand God's speeches as an evasive change of subject, others as an attempt to bully Job into submission, and still others as an effort to put Job's suffering in a broader perspective. And there's some truth to each of these interpretations, but each misses the larger message that God is communicating. Yes, God does direct Job's attention away from his specific situation, but it's not to evade responsibility for it or to provide a perspective that minimizes its importance in comparison to the whole cosmos. God also declares his power and sovereignty, his godness, in contrast to Job's limitations, his humanness. But it's not to strong-arm Job into silence. God guides Job's gaze from his suffering, in, from his suffering to creation in order to address Job's suffering. God's strength is intended to silence Job through consolation, not intimidation. God addresses Job's suffering by describing God's own relationship to the breadth of the creation in which Job suffers. He humbles Job while encouraging him. He puts his suffering in perspective without minimizing it. In so doing, God speaks to Job's suffering comprehensively in a way that also provides hope to anyone else who suffers. No one is too insignificant for God's care, and no suffering is too mighty to exceed his power. This message came uh, across to me very clearly uh, when I was, uh, I'd finished my PhD, and I was teaching for, uh, well, at this point, I was teaching for one year at Oxford, and um, I don't know if any of you are academics, but uh, the academic job market is not good. It's very difficult to find a job, and I had finished my PhD, and uh, I was working, doing a postdoc at Oxford, making the equivalent of $12,000 a year, and Oxford is one of the more expensive cities in the world to live in, and my wife and I had had our first child, and so we were burning through our savings just to continue to live so that I could do this job in the hopes of maybe getting another job. And the way that the academic job market works is um, they want new faculty to start in the fall 
So they do all the hiring ahead of that. And then if you don't get a job by the fall, you have to wait another complete year before you get another opportunity to apply for jobs. So I had applied for the few jobs that fit my skill set. hadn't got any of them. And I just had two applications left. And one of those two applications uh, was to a position at Cambridge where I had just finished my PhD, where I knew a lot of people, and the job was right on what I was doing my research on. And so people were telling me, they were sending me the job and saying, this is the job for you. And we were getting really excited about it. We thought we had a good chance at this one. We were starting to look for housing in Cambridge and so forth. Uh, And the other job that I had, had left was a real reach that I didn't think I had any chance at. Well, one day, I walked down to my mailbox and I got the envelope that had University of Cambridge on the front. And I knew that as soon as I opened that envelope, my life would change. (laughs) And if any of you have been to college, you've probably had that experience, right? Uh, And so I opened that envelope and I I read those dreaded first few words, we regret to inform you, right? And I was immediately crushed absolutely crushed because I knew that this was probably it for me. I had invested seven years of my life, $100,000 to prepare myself to teach the Bible. And if I didn't get this job, we couldn't afford to stay in Oxford another year. I was going to have to give it all up and try something else. And so I started wandering kind of aimlessly around Oxford and ended up in the Natural History Museum there in Oxford, which I hadn't spent much time in, but I was just trying to pray, but not even really able to, wandering around. And as I wandered, I saw an ostrich. And I looked down, and there was the ostrich egg. And I remembered, I mean, I had done my PhD on Job. I knew Job pretty well. I remembered how in chapter 39, God suggests that he's the one who cares for the ostrich egg. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I think God might be trying to remind me that even though I don't know what the future holds for me, and even though right now I'm suffering a great deal, um, maybe he's reminding me that he cares for me. And I thought, you know what would really get that across? If God really wanted to make that message clear to me, then he would get across the other part of the divine speeches, the idea that he is able to be in control of anything that I'm afraid of now. Wouldn't it be cool if I turned around and saw a crocodile? And there it was. There was a crocodile right there. And then I looked around and I realized that at that moment, the the Oxford Natural History Museum is just full of the breadth of God's creation. I mean, it has everything from butterflies to dinosaurs. And I realized that in that moment, when I was devastated when I didn't know what the future held, that God had taken this Job scholar and walked him into the divine speeches. Though I could have my own personal experience of the fact that God is in control and he cares for me and he can be trusted. Uh, And just to end that story, I ended up getting the other job, which I didn't think I had any chance of, which was a job uh, at Oxford, um, full-time job, so I could stay there and actually get paid enough to live there. But that is not the way the stories always end, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, in that case, I was really grateful for the way that it did, but also for the way that God walked me through that suffering to get me to that point so that he could show me how he's communicating here in these divine speeches. And I think that Job understands God's speech in that way, 
There's a lot of debate about this in scholarship, but I think he's understanding it that way because Job responds in 42.2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he acknowledges the limitations of his own knowledge and how God's revelation has expanded it such that the God of whom he had only heard, he has now seen. That's Job 42.5. And therefore, he says in Job 42.6, I lay aside my complaint and I am consoled on dust and ashes. Now, that's my translation of 42.6. The ESV translates it, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, The object of the verb that they translate despise is actually missing in the Hebrew. So they've filled it in, but I don't think you need to fill it in that way. And then the verb that they translate repent, it's It appears several other times in the book of Job, and every other time, console is a better translation. So I'd prefer to also use console here. So to understand 42.6, I lay aside my complaint. He doesn't have to complain anymore because God has heard him. And I am consoled on dust and ashes. He has been consoled by the consoling message that God has given to him. Now, I said yesterday that I usually like to go with the English translation wherever I can, but these are yesterday and today are one of two very few places where I would challenge the English translation. Um, So, can the divine speeches provide us with similar consolation in the midst of all the threats that we are currently facing now? No one who is suffering right now whether from this virus, from job loss, from racial injustice, or unrelated personal suffering that those cataclysms have overshadowed is too insignificant for God's care. And, the divine speeches teach us, none of the suffering that we face, whatever it might be, is too powerful for God's sovereign control. And yet, people are suffering. Job suffers. Some baby ravens starve, and some ostrich eggs never hatch. The the divine speeches don't attempt to explain why a good and powerful God allows evil to exist, why God created behemoth and leviathan or COVID-19 in the first place. But that's also part of what makes the divine speeches so masterfully applicable to any sufferer. God redirects our question from why a good and powerful God allows suffering to persist, the answer to which is different in each situation, and it's probably beyond our comprehension in most situations. Instead, he directs our attention to whom we must trust in every situation and why this God can sustain our hopes. Therefore, the book of Job supports N.T. Wright's recent advocation of lament rather than searching for explanations. But it doesn't support his conclusions that sometimes the Christian must wait without hope. No, the knowledge we may hear of God may not sustain us while the knowledge we may hear of God may not sustain us when we face suffering while the experience of seeing God can. And Job seems to understand this. He is consoled while still on the ash heap, while suffering without an explanation. 
That's why I think 42.5 is the crucial verse in the whole book where he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Right? There's a distinction he's drawing here between knowledge and experience. He's now experienced who God is, and that's what changes everything. Let's get to our final question. Seven, will things ever get back to normal? God does not actually leave Job on that ash heap. The epilogue of the book in chapter 42 describes Job's restored relationship with God and his community, which reinforces that the loss of both was really the focus of Job's affliction. After approving Job's speech in 42.7, God blesses Job with twice as much as he lost, as well as with 10 new children, including three daughters of incomparable beauty. Job also receives fellowship, comfort, and gifts from his friends and family. And the book ends with Job dying old and full of days, which is a blessed death in the Old Testament. And if you're like me, the question, when will our lives get back to normal, is probably running on repeat in your brain. Job teaches us, however, that persevering through suffering can create a new and better normal. And this is what we should hope for. Job had heard of God, but now he has seen him. After his life is restored, there's no mention of him offering preemptive sacrifices for his children any longer. Anxiety has been replaced with joyful generosity. As Job transcends cultural expectations of his time to offer his three daughters an inheritance with their brothers. Some find this happy ending disappointingly trite, but it is perfectly appropriate for the good and sovereign God to make everything right in the end. We don't know when that end will come in this current crisis or in any of the personal crises that we may be facing. Job had to wait a long time, and so may we. But the hope of the book of Job as of the Christian faith, is that the God who allows our suffering will also eventually end it. That if we emulate the endurance of Job, as James talks about it in 5.11, then we will see, as he says, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job teaches us that persevering through suffering can create this new and better normal, one in which we see the God we had only heard of, and anxious sacrifices are replaced with a deeper trust. As Job declares, even in the midst of his despair in chapter 19, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth.